0: Let's go beyond the data with Dave Matthias as he talks with experts across the world about leveraging human-centered and data-driven thinking to deliver amazing insights,
1: products, and experiences. Hey, everyone. A couple of quick items before getting started today. Really good to have you here, of course. Today, we're going to be talking with Michael Guille, and it's going to be a great interview, so I hope you get a lot from that. But before getting into the interview, just wanted to mention that You will now find this as go beyond the data in your feed. That isn't a mistake. Go beyond the data is all about using data to make better decisions, but really going beyond the data in leveraging things like behavioral science, product management, customer experience, user experience, and other things that organizations are trying to leverage to change the status quo, make better products, have better insights, and have better experiences. So we're not going to just be covering things around data. Now let's get into today's episode. Today I have Michael Guier with me and Michael is an awesome person that has a ton of experience. He has 25 plus years experience leading the design and implementation of data and reporting solutions. Hey Michael, good to have you here.
0: Hey, Dave, good to spend time with
1: you. And your experiences includes working with structured and unstructured data across digital advertising, consumer goods, healthcare insurance, like tons of industries. You're also a senior product manager, your day job, your senior product manager of analytics and data science at this, this little fast growing startup that's not so small now. It's called Sales Loft in Atlanta. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but you're also an adjunct stru- instructor of data viz and presentation, which I love the presentation part, not just the visualization at Georgia State University, Robinson College of Business. We'll get into that a little bit more too, because I think you'll have a good perspective also from being in the academic world, in addition to being in the professional world. Good to have you here with us today.
0: Yeah, thank you, Dave. I'm I'm excited to spend time with you. I I enjoyed our, our conversation a couple months ago, so this is great.
1: This is awesome. And so we're talking on a Friday morning and love to learn a little bit more about you. I know more about you. You're really interesting, hence why we're having you on here. But tell us a little bit more about how you got to the career point where you're at right now.
0: Sure. I'll just give you some snippets. My undergraduate was really work was in international economics, where I thought I would work on uh, crop and agricultural issues in uh, West Africa. My obvious French name gave me some interest in kind of leveraging uh, West Africa and the French nation and doing that. And I my first job out of college ended up being with Estee Lauder, where I got to uh, help with a lot of the pre-EU transition, doing a lot of inventory analysis, hands-on. In fact, it dates me a little bit, but I started using the Excel predecessor, Lotus One Two Three, in
1: 1988. Oh, so, uh, like, ouch! Yes, I do have some distant memories of that. As actually, as a kid, it's uh, not good memories, so I can tell you.
0: <laughs> so I just, beca- you know, through no. A little bit of academic background, but just through my own training, just became a little bit of an Excel wizard over time and, and through, through uh, graduate school, Anderson Anderson Consulting work, etc. just continually re- refined that. And over time, started lead teams and spent a bunch of time doing audio analytics, hence the uh, unstructured mic. I spent time with SpeechWorks and Nuance and Speech Recognition. We looked at largely audio analytics in a big way, and then... Right after it was at Nuance that I largely made the jump to product management. And in, uh, my niche in the world is not really product management. It's really kind of data solutions where organizations need assistance, making those data solutions valuable for their customers. That, Excellent. Is, that is my niche in the world. Well, well, at, least hey. the past, at least for the past 10 years.
1: Yeah, niche is getting to be a, a bigger, important part and less niche as we've gone to, obviously, digital products have become a lot bigger. and At SalesLoft, tell a little bit more about SalesLoft and what you do there, what the organization does, gives perspective to you and what you're doing now as a senior product manager in analytics and reporting.
0: Yeah, SalesLoft is great. So we are a cloud-based sales enablement platform. If you think about it contextually, like you have marketing automation, you have Salesforce's CRM, we are basically the system of execution. We are the way that sales folks do prospecting, deal engagement, and then customer engagement. So it's relatively new in the space, but we're an eight-year-old company growing rapidly, serving the needs of small companies that need to uh, sell, as well as large enterprise organizations. The part that gets me excited about being at Salesforce is, is our mission is really focusing on Changing the selling and buying experience for both the seller and the buyer, not just producing sales software, but really focusing in on the experience. In our kind of in our team's role, we really uh, I get excited about our team. Our team's role is to really facilitate kind of the display and presentation of information to s- salespeople and sales managers, so that they know what to do and how to better run their organizations and be more efficient.
1: We'll get more into that. We're going to be talking a little bit about designing data solutions, especially for those non-analytical customers. Sales, both on the buyers and the sellers, are obviously fall into that category. What is the thing that you find most interesting about your job? What gets you up and energized every day
0: for your job? You know, I think what gets me, has always got me excited over the past couple of years, whether I was doing healthcare work with nurses, is getting people who don't consider themselves analysts excited about data right? When they have those eureka moments of those small epiphanies, like that they get something and they know what to do, that's clearly what gets me excited.
1: We might as well get some tips out here and get your wisdom right now. So what is the biggest tip if you're a person that's got a similar role or or similar challenges yourself, what would be your biggest point of advice to get people excited that are non-data people?
0: So I think as data people, often we think about the data itself. And I think that one of the main keys is to really focus on the workflow workflow first, like what what are they trying to accomplish? What's their day? What are they doing every day, week, et cetera? As an example would be in sales, like there might be a, a weekly sales meeting and just subtle things like, how do we make that meeting successful?
1: Yes. And that's so a painful for right. the salespeople and, and, and productive.
0: Yeah. Both at sales law and previously at applied systems in the insurance industry, this idea about like, how do you facilitate the right conversation between the sales manager and the reps or the sales development reps to be able to have a fruitful, productive conversation. So that both parties walk away saying, I know what to do. I know what to resolve. I know what the next steps are.
1: Yeah, that's great. And so let's dive into this a little bit more. When you're talking about designing data solutions for non-analytical customers, how do you start with that approach? And when you think about things in the sales, let's talk in the sales segment, because that's where you're at now. And I've had a fair amount of experience in that sales segment too. How do you go about designing data solutions for those non-analytical customers, like a salesperson?
0: So obviously, one of the reasons is charting or summarizing the data becomes a point is that the trade-off is understanding like, what is the best chart to display this information versus what's a chart that's familiar that may be less productive, but they're more likely to use,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? So um, a four quadrant or a scatter plot or a bubble plot maybe with multiple axes, three metrics might be the ideal way to display some information. However, a horizontal bar chart effectively might be the way that, that they could look at it and not have all the information, but enough to be able to kind of... So I describe it, Dave, as this idea about trading off between the productive versus the familiar mm-hmm. and striking a balance between... Those two things.
1: So I think one of the things that we like to show is we like to show too much data to people, especially non-analytical folks, and showing people the right information at the right time that is meaningful action, but balancing that also where you don't want to make people Robots, you don't, we don't want our our frontline people, no matter what the positions are, uh, sales, certainly that they're just robots and certainly having a process, understanding the process and executing on it. But we also being able to really understand sort of first principles, thinking and being a thinking understanding why things are happening and being able to make adjustments on the fly. How do you balance that with getting information to them at certain times? I think that's always the challenge because I think we're facing that in a lot of our lives where it's like, how much is it just we're dictated by our calendars, for example, and our AI is saying, hey, this is going to be the most efficient people to follow up with, and I've just booked your full day as a salesperson versus how much you have the, the salesperson think, or they feel like they're just picking up the phone.
0: Yeah. Great point. Let me break that down just a little bit. The idea that we're first aligning to workflow means that we're, we're not adding to their work day. We're basically trying to make what they're doing already better. So that's the, the baseline start. The second is that understanding kind of context about what information is right in that context right? So you could be saying like, this review is a QBR, which could be a quarterly business review. So obviously, can I compare this quarter to the prior quarter? That's a, that would be table stakes in that context. So I think context becomes a, a second big piece. And then the, the other part, I would say, Dave, is the delivery, right? Is it purely audio? Is it actually a presentation on a TV? What exactly is the delivery or the medium that's being used to convey that information? Then I think lastly, is to where you were going, is determining like the degree of a prescriptive solution versus exploratory. And the idea that you can be very prescriptive in saying, here's the quarter, the default, but then can I then change, can I use interactivity as a way to facilitate exploration? And then second, secondarily is that, can I have access to the details in case I want to be able to go and do some ad hoc analysis? Thinking about in those, I think the part where most people go wrong is that they either go one extreme and saying they de- what I hear is I definitely have heard this before in consulting and elsewhere is that I talk to 10 customers, each of the 10 send 10 different things. Let's just give them the data, right? No prescriptive, no guidance whatsoever, versus having the kind of the the ability to glean to say what is common across these 10 that they're all asking for and what can we what can use that as a starting point.
1: Tied with this, I that I think a little bit, you can push back if I'm maybe jumping a little bit uh, farther down, but I have that tendency. Behavioral design. So when I think about when you're, especially for sales, for example, is designing software that's going to try to get to the optimal efficiency for salespeople in general versus how much do I understand, where I try to understand the tendencies, the strengths of that person, and I'm trying to get the best out of that person because we're not all the same. We all have different tendencies, all different likes, different things. So how much of it is software adapting somewhat to the individual and providing insights uh, versus trying to just pull pe- people to a certain baseline or certain salesperson type persona types action type?
0: Yeah. So this is a great tea up for data science. And I think what you described now is where we think about data science as being, which, here's the static report, the prescriptive guided narrative that we're providing for both Dave and Michael, but what's different about Michael and what can we enhance through suggestions in some way to, to, to differentiate, because there's something contextually. It may be not the right metaphor, but it's one we think about a little bit, is this idea about the Netflix recommendation. We all use the same medium, but being able to tell me that, by the way, other people like you also did this, giving that little slight nudge or that suggestion to a salesperson to be able to guide them beyond what kind of the prescriptive solution is. I think that's where that sweet spot that we want to go to.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So tell me more about what you've seen as successful in the space and developing software, not just obviously yet sales off right now, but also consulting in other places. And from a, from a perspective of being a senior product manager in that space, so you, as a senior product manager, you're really focused on aligning the business requirements where the business strategy to what the customer need is, and then obviously leveraging data and analytics. Tell a little bit more how that intersection works in the what you're doing.
0: Sure, I think I'm biased, but I think my academic training as an economist kind of lends itself to being able to thinking about things from a marginal utility perspective. What is the where do I get the biggest bang for the least amount of effort? Very traditional kind of product management technique. But when you think about it in the context of delivering information, it's even more important. I don't know if you're familiar with Amanda Cox. She leads the team at the New York Times. She is one mm-hmm. of my favorite human beings, both in terms of her intellect, but also her sense of humor. And she has a quote from years ago that said, data not like kids. It's okay to have favorites. <laughs> right. and, and what I take away from that is always that like, what makes sense? Which What parts of the data are going to get my users to take action mm-hmm. and to get them to sit up and take notice and and want to do and be motivated to do something. There's contextual pieces, which are usually secondary. What are the the three to five pieces of information? And I think that ends up being really the starting point. What are the three to five pieces of information that would, would change a salesperson's life? Am I having a good day or a good week or a bad day or bad week? Mm-hmm. What are those those three to five that are most critical to me? And then everything else becomes contextual. It's just how we deliver that
1: after that. One of the things you were talking about earlier was also from a leadership side, sales management side versus uh, the front line. How much does your software, thinking about those very different personas, but the objective should be aligned or hopefully is aligned with the goals of each. How does your software treat those different audiences different or do you think these audiences should be different? How, how do you go about that?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that we think about these distinct roles. I think we, we need to do a much better job on it, frankly. I think we're on that really good path to just saying, what is the information that a manager needs every day versus kind of a CR, sales development rep? What are How do they should they start their day? So I think largely that starts on the UX research side to better understand mm-hmm. what those things are. And that becomes a premise about how we do that. I think how we deliver that is making the software in a very component way. So if we were to think about it in terms of dashboards, the panels on a dashboard might be different for every user or based on their role. We might give that. we might actually be prescriptive in terms of hey, here's what we think you should see at the top. Here's what should the detail at the bottom, but potentially also give them the ability to configure it themselves.
1: Yes, yeah, that ability to have some choice and some adjustment. And so, what things have you seen most challenging in that software space for sales for adoption purposes where they're not resonating with the data? It's not working at the level. What are those challenges that come about and how do you think they can be overcome better?
0: Yeah, great question. No different than anywhere else, right? How do you highlight for our customers or users when clearly the problem is their data, right? Their data is a little bit off, Mm -hmm. right? Is there a way for us to gently kind of surface to be like, hey, the data is incomplete and you're not going to get the full picture in that way. So Mm -hmm. I think that's the kind of because that will be the, the difference among our customers is that some have very robust, they have a lot of resources, a sales operations team, strong administrators, where the the data quality is really strong. They're they're constantly improving the quality, and those that are strapped where they have multiple people wearing multiple hats. How do we help those users? How do we help those customers so that they? because they don't have some of the administrative resources or capability? How do we account for that a little bit? Something we're still wrestling with, the be honest, mm-hmm. Dave, but I think that's the, the right way. I know that in a prior life in the insurance space, we basically knew that there were 13 ways data could go bad, right? Missing data, misspellings, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. And we would basically have a little bit of data science, mostly regression-type things, to make to run a report for our team internally to suggest, hey, here are the things that you should recommend to our customers in terms of what, where their opportunities to correct their data might be.
1: So related to that is the communicating uncertainty. And so part of that uncertainty is going to be obviously higher if your data is not as good. And so how do you communicate that uncertainty and where you might even communicate to help the motivation to clean data more? Might I also lead to that where, why are we so uncertain about this two quarters from now and things like that?
0: Yeah, so there's some there's a little bit of data science. So there's a little bit of applying some scoring methodologies to be able to. Hey, I'm looking at various set of deals. You know, of all these deals, giving a general nudge or suggestion to be like, hey, this information is on this deal is a little bit incomplete compared to others. Mm -hmm. Right. So just as an example, the second would be is just really. uh, I think one of the things I love about sales offer we've made such a serious investment in design and in UX and research. And I think that not only having design concepts but testing those things to see that we're getting the right feedback from customers and users about, hey, do you understand what this is? Oftentimes on the data viz side, we use color as a way to do that. But design, our design team has many other techniques to be able to convey, not just uncertainty, but just, hey, incompleteness.
1: That that makes a lot of sense. You've obviously covered a lot of industries and you, as part of that, one of the things that I know that we were talking about before we actually started and record is just the importance of curiosity for Mm -hmm. folks that are in either in data or in product or space like that. Talk a little bit more. We were even talking about different ways to test for that and just thinking about from our different experiences. Talk a little bit about how you view curiosity in these spaces. How do you, what do you look for that? How do you encourage that? Certainly there's traits that people are more curious than others, but yours also, I think there's environments that encourage curiosity too because there's curious people that get stuck in environments that really don't encourage that. So I think it's stamped out some is part of the problem. So can you talk a little bit more about what your experience is and how to both create an environment that has good curiosity and also how do you help discern, is this person going to be a good person because they're going to have a good level of curiosity as one of the items?
0: Yeah. Let me talk about it two ways, if that's okay, Dave. I want to talk about in the context of a team and an analyst team and a development team, and then also in in the context of users. In the context of a team, like if we had an analyst team or I've had analyst teams in the past, curiosity becomes really tied strongly to your ability to clarify not just the problem, but the big problem. So as you can imagine in a sales context, that might be like, what can we do to help our customers grow their revenue this quarter? You need, you require curiosity on the team, even if the team doesn't really know. A lot of our dev team has never done sales. But how do we facilitate a curiosity in them to under, better understand sales? And I think it really goes to framing a bigger problem, not just a, a tactical, hey, we need to put a number on this screen. So I think that's one way. And I think it's also related to the team is is... Giving them the opportunity to like get excited about that. Hey, you're going to, one of the things we talk about in the team is it's like, hey, this is going to impact greater than 30,000 users next week. And I love the fact that our team gets excited about doing that. They don't, yeah. shy, they don't shy away <laughs> from it. They don't shy away from a big problem. They don't shy away from having a big impact. So I think mm-hmm. that's curiosity can be largely rooted professionally in that way. I think that when it comes to users, it's really this ability think of the visual met cue I would give everyone is just like this idea of an ellipse. Right? There's a little bit more. Right, Give them a little bit of a nugget, but give them a place if they want it, they can go more. And then be, take an interest from a product analytics standpoint, like where are they asking for more? Mm-hmm. What part of the app are they asking for more? Are they more curious about that? But I think it's, there's always a path to being able to give them just a little bit more. In fact, I, in some ways, I think it's we make the mistake of putting too much information on the page very often versus saying, let's just give... A few pieces of nuggets of data. And then if they need more, there's a place to get to it.
1: Yeah. And I think that more, but also and prioritizing sort of the impact, the the again, that big goal that you're the user is having too. And so I think what I've seen a lot, especially in the sales context, is on the sales management side, they'll slice and dice as soon as they get something to start looking at, they'll just find and they'll find what they want to find almost where you think it's going to be a tough quarter, you're going to find as mu- many reasons why it's going to be tough. And so, how do you? help users get out of those some of those natural cognitive biases that we face that are probably not either overly confident or overly negative and both, and I think a lot of these, just like being an athlete, I think salespeople, I always think of a good salesperson oftentimes feels like that because there's so many ups and downs and you're going to have the wins, but you're going to have so many losses. And part of it's grinding it out and, and showing up and trying to keep that good spirit throughout. So how do you help that from a data, from a sales product CI that can help those salespeople weather it, but also help the sales managers where they have obviously their own pressures on that front?
0: Yeah, I think that the nature of talking to customers and even internally on our services team is to convince them that we don't, ha- we may not have the answer, but we're la- our goal is to give them the ability to ask better questions, right? Makes sense. To drive them to a point to be like, I, I go- have to, I have to go give Dave some bad news because his performance is underperforming. Give me the right information so I can go ask Dave the right questions about mm-hmm. what's going on. The, the other. This is something I've, i there's a little bit of debate in kind of the community about whether data ever tells you why I skewed towards the idea that data really never tells you why it'll tell you one, uh, when, how, what, etc. A conversation is the way the why happens, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's where like Dave had a crummy week. I don't <laughs> yeah. know why Dave had a crummy week, but I I can at least better understand like Tuesday was awful.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Let's go talk specifically about Tuesday. Dave, tell me about Tuesday.
1: Yeah, it is interesting because I do wonder how much in the AI front, how much we want to more encourage that behavior in those conversations, and trying to not just over be overconfident in that we see these numbers that this is not not that we want to ignore the data, but we want to use the data in addition to those human conversations, and and not and my fear is that we're moving too quickly, and we want to go down that path too quickly, so.
0: Yeah. Sales, sales to me and the way we think about sales as sales off is all about the relationship, mm-hmm. right? It's about improving that experience. So the idea that we would decouple, have information decouple, that is would be different, right? The yeah. idea that we should support those conversations.
1: Definitely. Definitely. I know we're, we're running up on our time a little bit, but one of the topics we wanted to hit on a little bit more is data ethics and product managers. And it's certainly a big topic nowadays and love to, from a from both a product person and a data person like yourself, and we're both fall into that category, what is your view of what responsibility product managers have around data ethics? What can they do to meet those responsibilities and such?
0: Uh, a, a little plug. I have a workshop at GSU for data ethics, where I work with data scientists, getting mm-hmm. them to the, the way we frame it up or the way I frame it up is it's not If you're going to be in an ethical conversation about data, it's when. So broadly, what we do with the students and I do with our internal teams is we're developing in the muscle. We're practicing and thinking through scenarios to develop that muscle so that when that real scenario happens, we're ready. I think broadly for product managers, obviously, our legal groups are going to keep us honest from a privacy standpoint. I think the two places where things go awry are one on the, the fancy word called provenance, which is where did the data come from? We scraped, we, we're in, you're in a startup, we scraped it off some site, you know, were we allowed to do that, any risk there? Secondly, uh, so provenance becomes kind of a concern from the product manager side. And secondly, I think that particularly in the context of AI and data science, that the biggest risk that all of us face is the issue that we're going to negatively impact one audience. That audience could be small. It could be, so for instance, if you use you sales off an example. Oh, this only affects one percent of our users. Well, One percent of our users could be three hundred people. Mm-hmm. I think that we have to be aware of those those smaller communities or those smaller groups of users. And if you're in, if you read all the stories about where AI go, goes bad from an ethical standpoint, it's not it's impacted the majority. Mm-hmm. The bank loan who did get a bank loan, it's who didn't get a bank loan. Yeah. So I think that's the big thing that we have to keep, be really focused in on is understanding our. Product manager training is very much the marginal utility. Most people will get the benefit from this, but particularly when it comes to ethics and data and AI, I think that's the risk we have to be hypersensitive to.
1: And so is that risk to be borne by the product manager or how much is it just a product mm-hmm. manager engaging legal? Because I do wonder on some of these things where... I think we're trying to make product managers too too much of a unicorn uh, type of role and how much can they really understand things like the CCPA and the GDPR and all these other things. And, and they should understand, honestly, basics of those types of things. But what's fair use for certain scraping and like what way you're using? One thing that I've always recommended for product folks is just to engage the expert's early in whenever and just your biggest role is in that standpoint is issue spotting like you need to be able to spot there could be an issue here in getting people that are really a lot more versed in that than you certainly if you're in a small company you you may have to wear so many hats and right. probably not do it great but at the same time I think for especially when you're a more sizable company it's just a matter of getting people involved early in that
0: is that fair to say or what are your thoughts yeah i think we're thinking the same way i think that product manager has to own the conversation Mm-hmm. right? This conversation needs to happen with legal. I need to own the conversation and make sure that the conversation happened. We document it and the decision we make collectively as an organization. But I think the product manager needs to own the conversation and make sure that it happens and not avoid it.
1: Yeah. The key is a lot of these conversations early before a lot of investment spent. And then it's ways like we can't do this product that we're depending on, that we spent all this money redeveloping. I've seen that too often. Okay. Any other Words of advice for a person that's a, in your case, more of a data person turned product person. If somebody wanted to follow along in a career path similar to yourselves, what advice would you have?
0: Feel comfortable knowing the customer. I think for a lot of technical folks or data folks, the idea about bias, confirmation bias becomes a big issue. Oh, I know what you need because I know what this is what I would use. So I think on a product, the data person going to the product person, the biggest risk is the confirmation bias to be like, I know exactly what you need. And I think you have to walk into it saying, all right, right, I'm a complete, for, for me right now, I've had experience working with salespeople previous lives. I have to go into the conversation like, I don't understand sales, but mm-hmm. Expl- explain it to me as if I don't know anything. So I think that's the be- best advice. I think on the reverse, a product manager wanting to know more about the data is I think just thinking in the context of a basic Excel, right? Mm-hmm. Those Excel metaphors play out really well. You know, if you can mock it up in Excel, if you can kind of create an example in Excel, we're just talking about scalability and sophistication. But if you can talk the talk in Excel, you're more than half, more than halfway ready.
1: I know that those are both great pieces of advice. We're going to hit a few... Actually, one other question I want to ask, we're not going to end on this, but we're, we're is what is your biggest failure that you think you've had in your career that shaped you where you're at today? And what did you learn from it? And what, how did it shape you in a positive way?
0: So I, I can... I'm sad to say I have probably made the same mistake a couple of times and I needed a few times to get it right. Then a couple of times, others raised concerns to me about data. And I I knew the data and I knew the situation and I I'll give you a, a little detail. So there was a piece of some information for a large bank that we were working with. The information was wrong, but I knew the information would be wrong, but I knew it wouldn't be significant. So if you think about a large bank, we're talking like it was call center data. It was tens of thousands of users, right? The data was off by 4%. I knew it was off by a small number. It's an insignificant. They weren't going to change their business, but the customer and ironically, the service people, they were very concerned. And my body language and my attitude did not reflect the urgency that they had. Mm-hmm. So I knew what to do. We fixed it within a day. But I think in multiple cases that like it hurt my a little bit of my credibility. Sometimes I've been in I tend to not I tend to not panic or get worked up about things and I, sometimes that works against me.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. So certainly you've faced that a few times, but we're talking about how to have greater empathy for the audience you're talking with then What ways have you been able to learn and apply? How have you been able to change some? I'm sure you've obviously recognized it. so first step is getting over denial, so admitting. Can you tell a little bit how you've adapted based on that?
0: Yeah, I think, I think my interviewing techniques, applying a lot more advanced interviewing techniques that you would use mm-hmm. in product management, but, but really restating the problem back so that I have their perspective and it's not mine. So that becomes the easiest way. Oh, the meeting, you're going to use this information and the meeting's wrong. That meeting's really important for these reasons. Did I get that right?
1: Yeah, that, that's great advice and something everyone should be taking account if you're not doing it already. Yeah.
0: And data nerds tend to have a little bit of a, especially when you're talking with non-analysts, you can come across as arrogant or mm-hmm. others are are concerned about not saying the right thing. So there's already a level of anxiety when the non-data person's talking to a data person in mm-hmm. some cases and you have to you have to be able to work with them versus yeah. take your own perspective.
1: Yeah, using things like not using acronyms and and trying to create an environment that's more equal pe- playing field that you're not trying to show things in let's go Draft this dashboard together using Tableau right out of the and just do it together, versus let's just go to a whiteboard and those types of things. I think ways that you can try to create greater parity. So, going to ask you a couple quick rapid fires and then we're going to wrap up because I know we both have things coming up. Got to ask since you are a data viz instructor as one of your things as a at the university is if you were a data viz, what data viz would you
0: be? I would be a Sparkline, uh, simple, single purpose, very focused, one goal only. Mm-hmm. That's, that would represent me. My wife would probably say uh, scatter.
1: <laughs> see, see, at least I, my wife would say scatter plot And honestly, I say I'm scatterplot too, because I've admitted by now.
0: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Maybe I'm still in denial.
1: <laughs> what is your favorite book? It doesn't have to be a data or product or anything book. It could be just pure pleasure book. What's your
0: favorite book? Yeah, it's, it changes. Years ago, my mom gave me the book Small is Beautiful, um, Economics as if People Mattered.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: that was really her way of getting me to think. think. So I think that had a really st- strong influence in me early on. I think there's two things right now. The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawand is my favorite business book and the one I recommend to folks the most. And then Pleasure Reading goes The, the Drunkard's Walk. It's mm. how randomness rules our lives is something I recommend as well.
1: Great. That's a few recommendations. And so before we go, how are people going to get a hold of you? Where should they follow you? That kind of thing. What's the best spot for them to, if they want to learn more, or want to connect with you?
0: I think LinkedIn is probably the, the best way.
1: So on LinkedIn, that's M-I-G-U-I-L-L-E-T. So M-I-G-U-I-L-L-E-T looks like the right way to get a hold of you then.
0: I am on Twitter, but I generally just use it to follow folks that I'm intrigued about. or think. Info- yeah. When I'm looking to learn about, for instance, I'm deep in some machine learning things, I'm following a few folks on machine learning. So I'm using it as a way to consume information, mm-hmm. not necessarily share or, pub- or publish. But LinkedIn, I, I'm more inclined to share or interact with folks.
1: Excellent. So we'll put the link out there for your LinkedIn and hopefully some folks will connect with you. So any other things you wanted to hit on before we uh, drop off?
0: No, this has been wonderful. Thanks, Dave, for kind of making this happen. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Great to talk with you again and hope all is well. You have a great weekend ahead and we'll talk to you soon.
0: Thank you, Dave. Stay well.
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of Go Beyond the Data. It was great to have you with us today and I hope you enjoyed the show. Of course, if you did love to have you share it with a friend and of course we can always value your positive reviews on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. So, don't hesitate. Go in there. It will help others learn about the value of Go Beyond the Data. And if you want to learn more about me and what I do at Beyond the Data, then suggest you go to gobeyondthedata.com. And also make sure to check out our newsletter where once or twice a month we're sharing data-driven insights that are also human-centered. Just go there, check out the newsletter, sign up, and like you say, you get it once or twice a month. Thank you and have a great day.